The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Crypto, a daily Bloomberg iHeart podcast. And I'm Stacey Marie Ishmael, Managing Editor of Crypto for Bloomberg News. It's Wednesday, November 9th. Evangelists of Web3, a term popularized by venture capitalist Chris Dixon, will often say that a big goal of the whole thing is giving more power to creators, and especially monetary power. Web3, these proponents say, will allow artists, musicians, and creators of all stripes to cut out middlemen and intermediaries and retain more of the financial benefits of their work. In other words, why pay a platform or an agent or a dealer when you can keep all of your revenue for yourself? But this is where things get a little bit complicated. If you're an artist or a musician and you sell your work as an NFT, you'll definitely get paid the first time you make that sale. But what happens if the person who bought it from you then sells it to someone else? In the idealized version of NFTs, you'd get a royalty on that sale, automatically. In reality, many of these transactions aren't actually set up that way. For more on the current state of NFTs and how platforms are thinking about these royalties, We'll hear from Bloomberg crypto reporter Olga Karif. Over 90% of all of the NFT sales were wash trading. And now most uh, NFT trackers actually have a button you press to get (laughs) rid of all of the (laughs) wash trading volume and to see what's actually happening in the market. And from Dr. Lauren Van Haften Schick, who is an Andrew W. Mellon postdoctoral fellow at the Center for the Humanities at Wesleyan University. Platforms are the middle people. (laughs) Uh, And by that, I mean, they kind of become equivalent to dealers in a way. And I think, you know, dealers have played a really important role in this history in their ability to work with artists. Olga, Lauren, welcome to the show. Olga, it's always a pleasure to have you on. And you know, one of the things that you have extensively reported on and that you've even talked about in previous episodes is how the market for non-fungible tokens is 
doing. We are, I don't know, months into crypto winter at this point, and it feels like one of the bigger casualties of, shall we say, the decline in sentiment has been what's happening with NFTs. Like, what are the numbers these days? Since the beginning of the year through the third quarter, uh, sales volume is down. Uh, NFT average selling prices are down by, you know, a numbers of magnitude. And uh, the number of buyers in the market is also, you know, active buyers and sellers also <laughs> seems to be down a bit. Interest in NFTs has fallen off a cliff. Trading volumes for NFTs, which are basically just digital art and collectibles that are recorded on blockchains, has tumbled 97% from a record high in January. So what's the path forward for NFTs? Will we find a good use for the underlying so, technology? Uh, this uh, the NFT market has definitely been um, impacted in part by falling uh, cryptocurrency prices, but also by some factors that just relate to just this specific market. Mm -hmm. What are some of those factors? So with with cryptocurrency, <laughs> there are lots of use cases for it. With NFTs, what we've seen so far is that uh, most NFTs that have been popular they essentially don't do anything. They're, you know, say pictures of, you know, a cute animal or, <laughs> or an uh, a cartoon one. character. And it, right, exactly. And it doesn't really do anything useful. Whereas, you know, years ago, people were dreaming of NFTs being used as tickets, NFTs being used as, you know, um, membership cards to, uh, to events. And some of them are used this way, but this is a minority of uses. So Olga, you, you talk about this idea of utility tokens, right? And we've seen a handful of examples of the idea of, you know, your NFT gives you a VIP all access pass to like backstage at a concert. We have had folks talk about, well, you know, your NFTs can unlock restaurant experiences or and we've even profiled creators, especially musicians, who've been able to directly monetize their music on the blockchain without having to go through things like a Spotify or an Apple Music. And then, of course, there is like the in-game economy in places like Axie Infinity. But to your point, the vast majority of the volume and, and the like truly sky high prices were really in and around the art end of the market. Lauren, what I'd love to get your perspective on as a person who studies this, you know, I guess for fun and for work. <laughs> uh, but, but, but what I'd love to get your perspective on is what were some of the dynamics of the art market that these types of NFTs were like explicitly rejecting, as it were? Like, what were they supposed to be doing differently and better? NFTs have, you know, really, I think, appealed to a lot of artists because they have offered a relatively seamless solution for collecting resale royalties so that the artist would get a percentage of uh, the sale price whenever their work resells, um, thereby being able to share in those profits. Uh, now, historically, resale royalties have pretty famously been uh, largely rejected uh, by the traditional art market. Actually, in, in 1971, a very well-known artist contract was written by the dealer and curator Seth Stiegelob, um, which has been taken up by a number of artists since. And a very, very famous clause within that contract gives artists 15% of the upside whenever their work resells. And so the great thing about 
NFTs and smart contracts, as many artists see it, is that you know all of the work to kind of negotiate a contract, to kind of convince um, a dealer to accept an artist's desire to use one, um, or you know to to convince a collector that the artist wants to share in the resale value is now kind of taken care of through the basic automation of a smart contract. And um, really remarkably, um, resale royalties became pretty standard across NFT platforms from day one. Um, So even the first blockchain-based platform for selling art, Monograph, um, developed in 2014, 2015, actually replicated the resale royalty clause from this 1971 contract in an attempt to kind of do what the traditional art market wasn't able to. And Olga, one one thing about what Lauren is saying is after having all of this progress over the past, you know, several years, in the past several months, we've seen a kind of a reversal in that standard. Absolutely. So it's it's pretty amazing. And uh, it really has had a huge impact on the entire NFT market. So uh, previously, um, the largest marketplace, NFT marketplace, was OpenSea. Back in March, it commanded 85% market share. And what they did was they, as part of, you know, signing up for a sale on this marketplace, uh, you know, you would fill out... Uh, a royalty checkout, a royalty box. Essentially, you would uh, place a royalty of two and a half to ten percent, typically on uh, on on an NFT resale, and a lot of artists loved that. Uh, because like Lauren said, this finally opened a, an avenue for them to get paid on on secondary sales. But the problem is that. Um, NFT royalties are not enforced through a smart contract. They are, in fact, enforced by NFT marketplaces like OpenSea that support them. And what happened in recent months is that several new NFT marketplaces have debuted, you know, in the spring and in the in the summer. And what they said was, we'll make royalties optional. And essentially, <laughs> when they make royalties optional, of course, nobody wants to pay them. And this marketplace has gained a ton of market share. So what we've seen is that OpenSea's market share dropped from 85% in March to 38% at the end of September. Coming up, more on what's happening with the NFT market and to artists, especially as it relates to resale royalties. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. 
Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Lauren, having studied this in the quote-unquote real world, as well as now in the, the digital world, what are artists to do? I think I want to push back a little bit in the sense that let's keep in mind that NFT platforms have only existed in a sizable scale since, okay, maybe 2018 and only really exploded less than two years ago. So I think this is all still very, very new. And we can't forget that. Um, I think we still are in a place where norms and standards are kind of up in play. And there are still plenty of platforms that are promoting uh, resale royalties and even just the sort of principle of equity. And so I, I don't want to discount that, actually. I think that, you know, it's really important to recognize the fact, again, that things still are very much in formation, just as these new developments of, you know, platforms that don't give royalties are quite new. Well, who knows what's around the corner? And already there are NFT makers who are pushing back against new platforms that don't have royalties built in. You know, resale royalties are, are one thing to point to, but I also don't believe that we should limit the, our, our, our conversations around the kind of financial possibilities of, of NFTs to something like resale royalties. I'm also very interested in artists who are looking to more broadly redistributive models and recognizing just the simple kind of administrative cost advantage of what you can do when you can automatically pay a number of people or say organizations, you know, et cetera. Um, so Sarah Ludi is an artist who shows at Bitforms Gallery and um, has developed a future NFT agreement where 35% of the sale uh, would go to her gallery, but that would be divided among the staff. But so that's like one kind of model of how we can rethink what art sales are doing in the first place. Could these models exist outside of a blockchain-enabled technology, right? Because to, you know, Olga's earlier point, it was not actually an on-chain mechanism that was enforcing secondary royalties. It was sort of the will of platforms. And I think, Lauren, what you're pointing to is that the will of either individual creators or collectives of creators and the, you know, like the ecosystem in which they operate is equally, if not more important in terms of standard setting. And what I'm what I'm always fascinated by in crypto is this tension between the rhetoric of decentralization being for the greater good and the reality that some degree of centralization is where norms come from and can be standardized and enforced. And so, Lauren, what I'd love for you to just kind of elaborate on is what is it about the digital power of things like royalties that seem to make people perhaps more interested, more amenable to thinking about things differently, even if they don't actually need the digital piece to enforce those mechanisms? Yeah, I think it's a very good question. Uh, there are a few factors here. One, again, I think is is the kind of automation factor. 
and you know contracts are contracts with something like a controversial term like resale royalties in them are very difficult to negotiate one-on-one to present somebody with especially for somebody like artists who have historically been in a lower bargaining position so i think that's one thing i think too uh, you know the 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 rise of these platforms you know came not entirely from people who were you know already immersed in the traditional art world and already kind of had those standards in mind and i'm thinking about super rare for example the people who started super rare were coming from the music industry spotify and so their understanding of a royalty was actually thinking about music royalties and thinking about well you know creators there get to share in you know some kind of profit or profit in some way each time you know a, a song is played or whatever of course music is a very different type of good than an artwork or even you know some kind of digital image um but nonetheless i think it's you know and interesting to think about the different kinds of factors at play and influences at play that have really made for a quite unique combination of things now that we didn't quite see before and the fact that um nft buyers tend to not participate in the traditional art market it's not that you had a bunch of buyers who were coming from you know brooklyn gallery life who were used to one way of doing things now coming into nfts you had people who were coming to nfts as their way into the art market right exactly and i think it's going to be very interesting to watch what happens more and more if say nft buyers who you know had become accustomed to buying works with a resale royalty attached you know make their way into the traditional art market and then artists there ask for resale royalties will those collectors say no Olga, one thing I want to make sure that we address when whenever we talk about volumes is just this idea of wash trading. Because for a while, one of the big criticisms of folks who were, you know, saying like, oh, my God, look at these amazing prices and volumes on a lot of these platforms was in some cases, these were sales that were not exactly traditional <laughs> in the sense of this is this is a buyer exchanging this with a, with a seller. Can you just explain what wash trades were in NFTs and how they affected some of this data? Wash trading would be, you know, a person basically uh, selling an NFT between his own accounts, right? Back and forth, back and forth. And the reason this was happening was because some of the NFT marketplaces offered um, their own tokens to uh, to people based on the amount of activity on the marketplace. And so the more trading you did, uh, the more of those tokens you earned. And in some cases, those tokens were quite valuable and, and they could appreciate in price. By some estimates, you know, over 90% of all of the NFT sales were wash trading. And now most uh, NFT trackers actually have a button you press to get <laughs> rid of all of the wash trading volume and to see what's actually happening in the market. A lot harder to do in physical arts, Lauren, I would imagine. <laughs> just be moving yeah, a piece around warehouses. <laughs> um, so, Lauren, as just as a kind of a closing thing, I'm really interested in what you said about, you know, the differences in standards and principles going all the way back decades in terms of physical galleries and, you know, art versus what you're seeing in NFTs. Are there any good things that you have observed in quote-unquote traditional art markets that you think folks who are trying to innovate in digital should adopt? Mm, that's a fantastic question. 
I think it's a real danger um, that there's so much rhetoric against, you know, the scare quotes middleman among NFT creators and platforms. You know, the platforms are the middle people. (laughs) Uh, And by that, I mean, they kind of become equivalent to dealers in a way. And I think, you know, dealers have played a really important role in this history in their ability to work with artists to like realize for artists the kinds of sales an artist want, you know, to help artists be able to show the kind of work that they want. And, um, you know, I really do believe that dealers as well as curators can be serious advocates um, and partners with artists. And I don't think that that relationship has translated to this new world. So that I would like to see the importance of relationships here be taken much more seriously. Thank you, Olga, and thank you, Lauren. You can find more of Olga's reporting on the Bloomberg Terminal, on Bloomberg.com, and on Twitter. She's at Olga Karif. That's O-L-G-A-K-H-A-R-I-F. On the next episode of Bloomberg Crypto, how do 500 investors feel about the prospects for digital assets? Well, we asked them. Why do so many of them perceive the... Why do so many of them perceive the likelihood of regulation as bullish for the asset class? We'll discuss the findings of a recent Bloomberg Markets Live Pulse survey. This is Bloomberg Crypto, a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Send us your comments, questions, or suggestions for the show to crypto at Bloomberg.net or find us on Twitter, we're at Crypto. The supervising producer of Bloomberg Crypto is Vicky Vergolina. Our senior producer is Janet Babin. Our producers are Mohamed Farouk and Sharon Bariro. Our associate producers are Ty Butler and Moses Undam. Desta Wonderad is our engineer. Original music by Leo Sidron. I'm Stacey Marie Ishmael. We'll be back tomorrow. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.